Now the children of Israel have left Mount Sinai. They're beginning now the wilderness march that should have taken them only actually days to have gotten into the land. But it ended up by them spending years in the wilderness. And here's the first thing that rose that caused them a certain amount of problem. And I'll be just able to get down into this. And this, again, is something to me that's quite humorous. However, it's a pretty serious sort of a thing. Now, will you notice? And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. And the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. Every time the people complained, the glory of the Lord appeared. He was displeased with their groaning and complaining. I'm of the opinion he's displeased with many of these criticizing, complaining saints today that are everlastingly finding fault, and nothing seems to please them. God doesn't want it that way for you, friends. He wants you to be a happy, joyful Christian. Now the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now they began to complain. What's back of all of this complaint? Who were the troublemakers? Well, here they are, and we can locate them, and we'll just be able to locate them today. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting, and the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Now they're beginning to complain. They're beginning to find fault. And who is it that started it all? Well, the mixed multitude. Now, you remember the mixed multitude were those who were not sure who they were. They couldn't go up and join one of the tribes. They couldn't declare their pedigree. They weren't sure. And they weren't sure whether they should go on the wilderness march or not. After all, each one of them had a father or a mother down in Egypt or a father and mother in the camp of Israel. There'd been this intermarriage. They're a mixed multitude. And they are just enough Egyptian to like Egypt. And they're just enough Israelites to want to go on the wilderness march. And you know, we've got our churches filled with people like that today. There are people that, yes, they want to mix with church people. They like to hear a good sermon. They want to go to church on Sunday. They want to live an upstanding life, they say. They want to be moral people. And so they've joined the church. They want to be with that crowd. But during the week, friends, they want to run with the world. They're a mixed multitude. They're with Egypt six days during the week and with the church one day a week. They're not quite sure really where they do belong. They're not sure of their salvation, that is for sure. And I have discovered over a period of many years as a pastor, and I can say this now that I'm no longer a pastor, I've discovered that the real troublemakers in any church today are the mixed multitude. They actually are going with the world, and they're going with the church people. They like to have a church banquet, but they don't want Bible study, you know. That's getting too close to the ark. They want to stay way back, you know. They're not sure but what they might turn and go back sometime. They're never quite clear. They're never happy when you're having a real time of spiritual blessing. They're uncomfortable there. And they're uncomfortable with the world. They just don't seem to fit in. They're a square peg in a round hole. And they just don't seem to fit. And they're generally troublemakers. Now here, this crowd, they fell a-lusting. And what was it you think that they wanted? Listen to this. We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Boy, what they liked. Everything they liked was a condiment, except fish, of course. And you can't catch many fish out in that wilderness. There weren't many lakes out there then. And these people weren't eating fish. But boy, had they had fish down in Egypt all the fish they wanted. And I'm of the opinion they got pretty tired of fish down there. But now that's what they remember. And they remember, notice, cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. And everything they liked either grew on the ground or in the ground. Boy, they did like it down like that. That was sort of like root hog or die. They were the kind that wanted the worldly, earthly things 
And that's what started all the complaint. They didn't like Bible study, I can tell you that. Someone said that an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but an onion a day will keep everybody away. And garlic will keep the whole community away. But it is good in meat, is it not? And in other things. Now, that's what they remembered. And the things they remembered are things that grew on the ground or under the ground. And now listen to them complain. Verse 6, "...but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes." Now they're complaining about manna. Can you imagine that? Here they have manna to eat, and what happens? Well, they begin to complain about the manna, and they didn't like it. And now what happens? The Spirit of God comes along and describes it for us for the second time what manna was. In other words, the Spirit of God says, this is what they're complaining about. Here is the thing that they did not like, and how wonderful it was. Now, verse 7, "...and the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of bedelium. And the people went about and gathered it." Now, it was not a monotonous food. The fact of the matter is, when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll find there that God told them, When you went through the wilderness, your foot did not swell. And that means that they didn't get beriberi. Beriberi comes from eating that which is just one article of food. Well, now they're just eating manna in the wilderness, and yet they didn't get beriberi. What does that mean? That means that manna had all the vitamins in it. It means it was God's food. And this manna, of course, speaks of Christ and speaks of the Word of God that reveals him. The manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof is the color of bedelium. And the people went about and gathered it. Now, notice the different ways it could be fixed. And they ground it in mills, or beat it in a mortar, and baked it in pans, made cakes of it, and the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Now, here is the description given of it. It was not monotonous food. It could be fixed in many different ways. They could bake it. They could fry it. They could slice it. They could grind it. They could make bread out of it. They could make cake out of it. They could just about do everything with the manna. In fact, I'm not sure but what Ms. Moses got out of cookbook. Mother Moses' cookbook on many ways to fix manna would be the title of her book. And you could just fix manna any kind of ways. It was a very marvelous food. And the Spirit of God is saying, look, this is what the people are despising. And isn't that true? Somebody says to me, my, that was terrible that they did that back in those days. We would never do that. Well, this manna's Christ. How do you feel about him? I had someone that made the complaint. They were formerly a member of the church I served in Los Angeles. And when they left, they made the statement to someone else. They said, well, we got tired down there. All Dr. McGee did on Sunday was just give an invitation, and all he did was just preach the gospel. And that's about the best compliment they could have paid me. But you see, they got tired of manna. It's amazing today how people get tired of manna. But they do. They don't like Bible study either. A lot of people don't. Now, we're thrilled at the response we've had to this. But we also recognize that a large segment of the church and the largest segment, they're not concerned about Bible study, friends. They just don't want it. They don't go for it. And that is, of course, the predicament of the church today. It's due to the fact they've turned from the Word of God and they're trying to feed somewhere else other than on the manna that God has provided. Now, will you notice after this that even Moses is getting a little weary of this crowd by now, and I have a certain sympathy for him, but notice what he's doing here. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, Moses also was displeased. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, 
And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? The question is, is Moses complaining? I think he is. Sounds to me like that he is complaining here. He says, Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that thou shouldst say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth a sucking child, under the land which thou swearest unto their fathers? Whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all this people alone, because it's too heavy for me. This is Moses. He's complaining, friends. Moses wasn't a perfect man by any means. He was just a plain human being, but mightily used of God. Now, will you notice verse 15? And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I found favor in thy sight. Let me not see my wretchedness. Moses said, I'd rather be dead than go through what I'm going through with this crowd. My, that crowd, friends, were very difficult. I know many pastors that have ulcers, going to doctors. Some have had nervous breakdowns. I know several men that have gotten out of the ministry. You know why? They're doing the same thing Moses is doing. They're complaining to the Lord about the fact that the burden's too great. They got tired of hearing the criticisms and the complaints and the whining and the difficulties. May I say to you, you say they ought to bear it. Well, Look at Brother Moses here, friends. Now notice what God's going to do. And I want to say to you now very definitely, Moses made a mistake in complaining like this to God. For what did God do? Will you notice this? And the Lord said unto Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them, and bring them unto the tabernacle of the congregation, that they may stand there with thee. Now, God says, all right, Moses, I'll give you help then, if that's what you want. In other words, Moses is saying, I'm the one bearing all these people. Well, he wasn't. And God never asked him to. And God was bearing them and also bearing Moses. And Moses was not fully cast upon God himself. And now God very patiently and very graciously, he provides now assistance, and the 70 are appointed. By the way, this 70 continued down in their history, and one day the 70 met. They were the Sanhedrin, by the way, and they decided to put Jesus to death. I think maybe Moses shouldn't have started this organization. We think today in the church, if we'll multiply committees and organizations and methods, that that'll solve our problems. But that hasn't solved the problems of the church today, and we don't need another organization. We've got enough right now. Let's be done with the organizations. We don't need a Sanhedrin. And so here is the beginning of the Sanhedrin. Now, verse 17, I'm reading, "...and I will come down and talk with thee there, and I will take of the Spirit which is upon thee, and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone." Now, if God had called Moses to do it, God would provide the strength for him to do it. God always does that. He never asks you to do more than you can do. And if you feel like that you are overworked or that you are doing too much, then maybe you really are. Maybe that you're doing more than God wants you to do, because God will not overburden those that are his own. Now notice verse 18, "...and say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves again tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh." God says, you want to eat flesh? I'm going to give you flesh. In fact, it's going to stick in your teeth. I'm going to give you so much. It's quite interesting, the comment that the Spirit of God makes later in the time of the writing of the Psalms upon this. Over in Psalm 106, verse 15, which is a historic psalm, I read this. He gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. 
He granted their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. And this has with it a terrific message. God heard their complaint, and God answered it. He heard their request. And I imagine a few of them ran around and said they got the answer to prayer. But notice what followed. He sent leanness to their souls. Now, all the requests that you and I make to God, we're to do it with thanksgiving because God's going to hear an answer. Now, most of the time, to me, he says no. Not yes. He says no. I won't grant it. And that's a good answer. I found in the period of years that that's the best answer that God can give. Many times he won't grant it. But many times God will grant your request. And when he does, he sends leanness to your soul. You get what you pray for, but it wasn't the best thing for you. And that happens, I think, oftentimes with Christians. I remember a certain man that I had who was an officer in my church years ago in another city. And he came to me one day and he said, pray for me. My business is shaky right now. In fact, it's in jeopardy. And I want you to pray that the Lord will bless me in my business. In fact, the matter is, he says, I have an opportunity of becoming wealthy, and I would appreciate you praying that I might make money. And you know, I was a young preacher then, and I just went immediately and prayed that the man would make money and that God would establish his business. And you know, God did that. This man, of course, prayed, and God heard his prayer. He got rich. That was the worst thing ever happened to that man. He lost all of his children. When they found out they had money, they'd been fine family until they got more money than they needed and that they should have had. He granted their request, but he sent leanness unto their soul. He said to them, you're going to eat flesh. I'm really going to give you flesh. And now, notice what he says, "...for ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt." Therefore, the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. And that's exactly what he did. And we find here that Moses said, verse 21, The people among whom I am are 600,000 footmen, and thou hast said, I'll give them flesh, that they may eat a whole month. Now shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? The Lord said unto Moses, Is the Lord's hand waxed short? Moses said, How are you going to do it? God says, I'll do it. And you never need to ask God how if he lets you know he's going to do it. He'll do it, friends, and he doesn't need your how or my how. He does it his how. He does it the way he wants to do it. And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, set them round about the tabernacle. The Lord came down in a cloud, and he spake unto him, and took of the Spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the seventy elders. came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Actually, there was no more power than there was before. There was lots more machinery than there was before, but not any more power. The same Spirit was divided among them. Now we find that God's going to also give them flesh to eat. And there remain, we're told here, two in the camp that prophesied at this time. There remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other, Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out unto the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Joshua was for Moses, and he was loyal to him. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his Spirit upon them. This, friends, is a very wonderful chapter, and the next chapter is to it. It reveals that there wasn't a jealous bone in the body of Moses. He had no jealousy at all that these others were able to prophesy.
Actually, there are three great sins of the ministry. You know what they are? Number one is laziness. Number two is jealousy. And number three is boredom, just being boring. And some of us are guilty of all three, maybe. But Moses was not a jealous man. Jealous is an awful thing. Now we find that the Lord really gives them quail to eat. He's going to provide the quail on toast. You couldn't have it better than that. Verse 31, "...there went forth a wind from the Lord, and brought quail from the sea, and let them fall by the camp, as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp." and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. I just can't imagine quail like this. I've been quail hunting and looked all day and maybe found two or three quail, but just imagine them like this. God really provided quail for them. And the people stood up all day and all that night and all the next day, and they gathered the quails. He that gathered least gathered ten homers, and that's about 86 gallons. And I don't think they had cold storage. They had to cook all this up. And they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. He called the name of the place Kibroth-Hatavah, because there they buried the people that lusted. That's gluttony despising the manna. God judges those things, still does. Remember, Paul said if we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. But when we don't judge ourselves, we are judged, that we not be judged with the lost. Now, we find that the great number of them were slain. Now, in chapter 12 here, we have them going from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And you have the murmuring here of Miriam and Aaron. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he'd married an Ethiopian woman. Now, I don't think this was the daughter of the priest of Midian. That was a Midianite. This is another woman that he had taken, apparently. Moses' home life is never covered in the Bible. I can't believe it could have been very happy, but we know so little about it. This is the occasion that Miriam and Aaron used to find fault with Moses, and they're jealous, you notice. And they said, "'Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us?' And the Lord heard it. This is big sister. You remember Miriam? Miriam could say, "'Who does this boy Moses think that he is?' Well, I can remember when he was a little bitty baby in a ark, and I watched over him. If I hadn't watched over him, where'd he be today? And this is big sister talking. And Aaron is the high priest. He's the big brother, too. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Moses and our Lord were meek. We've already, I think, had two or three occasions where... It didn't look like meekness, but remember, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is being obedient to God and doing His will. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, unto Aaron, unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle and the congregation. And they three came out. It's a family affair, you see. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud, stood in the door of the tabernacle, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision. I'll speak unto him in a dream. God says, I choose the prophets. I'm the one. But he says, my servant Moses is not so. What he's really saying here in the literal is, my servant Moses is greater. He's faithful in all mine house. And with him, God deals with him differently. Will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently not in dark speeches? You see, God dealt with Moses directly, friends, in a way that he did not deal with anyone else that I can find in the Old Testament. God appeared in dreams to Abraham. God appeared in dreams to Joseph. But God dealt with Moses face to face. God says, I'll choose the prophets, but Moses is different. 
than all the others. And later on, we're going to say one like unto Moses, a prophet like unto Moses, God will raise up. And that, of course, was the Lord Jesus. Now, friends, we come to the 13th chapter of the book of Numbers. The children of Israel were coming up to Kadesh Barnea. And this is the place where they turned back. And we are told here in this first verse, and I'm reading, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Send thou men, that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. Now, they've come here to Kadesh, and they are told now to send in spies. But the question arises, whose idea was it to send spies? Was it the idea of God? Was that his thought to send in spies? Well, no, actually, we always need to get a composite picture of the Word of God because many times in one place you have one facet given and in another, another facet. That's the reason that the four Gospels are essential because it takes all four to give a total spectrum of the Savior. And here we find that it would seem from this that it's God's idea. Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan. But actually, he was responding to their request. If you go over to the first chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 22 it is, and I want to turn there now and look at that for just a moment. And listen very carefully. And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search us out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and to what cities we shall come. Now, it was not God's idea to send spies into the land. The sending in of spies denoted a weakness and a fear on the part of these people. There was a fear that maybe they wouldn't be able to take the land. Maybe it was more difficult than they could possibly imagine so they could send in spies. And it'd be very easy for the people to rationalize and say, well, this is a matter of wisdom. But you see, they are being led of God, and it reveals a lack of faith on their part. They're not trusting God here. In other words, God had already been in and spied out the land. He knew all about it. He would not have sent them into the land if he felt they couldn't take it. Finally, they did enter the land, and the giants were still there, and the same problems were still there, and yet they took the land. The important thing for you and me to note in a case like this is that it has a message for us today. Are we really walking by faith? A great many of God's people today take all the precautions, and of course, it's well to take precautions, but there is a time when we do need to commit our way unto the Lord, lean not on thine own understanding, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, we come to that place in our lives when we are to commit our way to him and trust him completely. Now, these people have come to that place, and they're not trusting God. They said, we'll send in spies, and we'll find out the way that we would do it. Now, God again yields to them. He permits them to do this thing. You remember, it was said in the Psalms, He granted their requests, but He sent leanness to their souls. And friends, this is another one of their blunders, lack of faith on their part and trust in God. Now, the Lord commands it in response to their request, and it's to be done orderly. And they were to choose out of every tribe a ruler. And now you have the list given. And the only thing I'm interested in in the list is that in verse 6 of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And we'll be coming to Caleb now in this book and also in Joshua. He's a remarkable man. And so he was one that brought in a minority report, by the way. And then in verse 8 of the tribe of Ephraim, it is Hoshea. 
is our translation, but it's Joshua, the son of Nun. So these are the two men that interest us here, and the spies now are chosen, and they are sent in, are given a commission. Verse 17, And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said unto them, Get you up this way southward, go up into the mountain, and see the land, what it is. And the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not, and be ye of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. This is the commission that's given to them. Now the spies go in. They've been given their commission, what they're to do. So they went up, verse 21, and they searched the land from the wilderness of Zin under Rehob as men come to Hamath. Now, Hamath is way up in the extreme north. The spies did a thorough job. fact, the matter is, I think they could have written a book entitled Inside Palestine, or Inside the Promised Land, because they were inside of it, and they knew a great deal about it. And they went up, and we're told here what they did, and the places they went to, and they saw the children of Anak, the giants. And they also, verse 23, they came unto the brook of Eschol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. Now, our translation gives the impression that it took two men to carry one bunch of grapes. That actually is not true. What they did, they cut down enough grapes, and they were lush grapes, of course, but they cut down enough for two men to carry, and it was put on a pole between them. But it wasn't just one bunch of grapes, and that's really not the thought here at all. Now, they go in and they come back and make their report now. And remember, they did a thorough job, no question about that. And they went and came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh. And they brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now, they brought back the fruit, to show what a wonderful land it was. Now they presented the facts, and they presented facts. Listen to them. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. In other words, God was accurate when he said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. That was true. And the cities are walled. That was true. And very great. That was true. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And that was true. These were the giants, by the way. Now notice how they interpreted the facts. It's the interpretation of the facts is where they went awry. This is where they detoured. Verse 30, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, this is the minority report. It's Caleb and Joshua. And their interpretation was, We can go up and take the land. But the majority report didn't agree with it. Verse 31, But the man that went up with him said, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we've gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. You know, when you're afraid and you've lost your faith, how circumstances and difficulties and problems are magnified. They become greater than they really are. And believe me, the giants up there, 
And there were giants. They were bigger giants than they actually were. They look that way to these people. They're afraid. And in verse 33, "...and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight." Now we have here something that's very interesting. You have giants and grasshoppers. And there's one, though, that's been left out. And you know what that is? That's God. I have a sermon. The title of that sermon is Giants, Grasshoppers, and God. And this is the verse I use, in fact, the entire incident. You know, they saw the giants there. And when they saw the giants, the son of Anak, why, they looked like grasshoppers. That's the way they compared themselves. But they left God out of the equation. If they'd only put him in, it'd been an altogether different story. Now you can see they brought back the report. There are two sections of the report. The facts, they were accurate. The interpretation of them, two divergent and different reports. One is, let's go in and take the land. We're able to do it. That's the minority report. The majority report says we can't take it. And that is the report that the people, of course, fell for because they didn't believe they could take the land. Lack of faith. Now will you notice, I'm coming now to chapter 14, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. They had a good old cry that evening. Israel now has come to the place of decision. They've got to decide whether they're going to enter or not. And we are finding that Israel refuses to enter, and the reason is unbelief. They refuse to enter because of unbelief. And the writer to the Hebrews puts it just that way. In Hebrews 3, in verse 7 down to 19, you have the entire incident given. And he concludes it by saying, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That was the thing that kept them out of the land. Now I want to read on here. Verse 2 of chapter 14. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God we died in the land of Egypt, or would God we died in this wilderness? And I'm of the opinion that at this time, poor Moses and Aaron wished they had died in the wilderness, gotten rid of them, because, my, here they go complaining again, and they do not want to enter in. Verse 3, And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey, were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? Now notice in the bad frame of mind that they're in, that they say that our wives and our children should be a prey. Now, the lame excuse they used was that our children will perish, and we're thinking of them. But it was a reflection on God that he was not thinking of them. And the fact of the matter is, who was it that really entered the land? Well, it was the new generation that entered the land. That new generation went in. The crowd that these old people said, well, we're thinking of them. But the fact of the matter is, God was the one thinking of them, and they were not thinking of them at all. They should have been in a position to have trusted God. Now will you notice, "...and they said one to another, let us make a captain, let us return into Egypt." They want to go back now. They want to turn back and return back to the land of Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Now, these two men, Caleb and Joshua, they brought back the same report in the sense the facts were the same, but the interpretation is different. They said we can enter the land. What is the difference? God. When you 
see yourself in the presence of giants as a grasshopper, that's when you need God, my friend. And this is the time these people certainly needed God on the scene. And at this time, Moses is making it very clear to these people that the report is one they're either going to have to accept or reject, and that only if God will delight in them. And he can't delight in them unless they believe, unless they trust him. And verse 9, "...only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land." For they are bread for us. I think our expression today, our idiom would be, they'd be duck soup for us. Now will you notice, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord's with us. Fear them not. This is a difference between faith in God and those that do not have faith in God. Now verse 10, But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. Have you noted that every time there's a rebellion or murmuring or complaining, the glory of the Lord appears? God's highly displeased with this rebellion against him. Now, verse 11, "...and the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs..." which I have showed among them. I will smite them with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and make of thee a great nation, and mightier than they. God says to Moses, I'll destroy them, I'll get rid of them, and then I'll make a nation from you and fulfill my promises in you. Now, will you notice this? Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord is not able to bring this people into the land which he swore unto them. In other words, the report, the rumor would go around. Well, God was able to bring them out of Egypt, but he wasn't able to put them into the land. He wasn't able to complete that which he had begun. And Moses calls the Lord's attention to that. And now God agrees to go ahead and put them into the land. And he gives this great prophecy here. It's the first time prophecy, and it occurs many, many times in Scripture. It's verse 21. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. God brought these children out of the land of Egypt and put them in the promised land. And God has saved you. And God has a plan and a purpose he's working on. And he's doing all this that this earth someday is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. And we find now that Caleb and Joshua are singled out. They are different. Verse 24, God is speaking now. He says, But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. That's a promise God made to him, and God made it good. Now we find God's answer to these people who actually cast a reflection on God that he wasn't thinking of their children. Listen to verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. In other words, that murmuring crowd... They are not going to enter in, but the children will enter in. Notice verse 31 then. But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. They would be the ones that would enter the land. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And what a picture that is. 
Now we come here in the last part of this chapter. The children of Israel now, they want to, after crying and starting away from the place, they look into what's ahead of them, and they now are more afraid, actually, of the wilderness than they are of the land that they were to enter. And it's for them a lost opportunity. Will you notice verse 40? And they rose up early in the morning and got them up into the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and we'll go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we've sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord's not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemy. In other words, it's a lost opportunity. They wouldn't go in when God commanded it. Now they presume, it's presumption now to go up. Faith is not presumption, but this is presumption. Verse 44, "...but they presumed to go up under the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt in the land, and smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah." In other words, the children of Israel now are wanting to do it their way rather than God's way, and there's no blessing. That brings us to the 15th chapter now of the book of Numbers. The children of Israel came to a point of decision. It was at Kadesh Barnea. And as you know, decisions are the difficult things for all of us in this life, and especially for a Christian Many times we come to the crossroads and we're not sure which way to go. Now, it was crystal clear to these people which way they should have gone. They went the wrong way and they were faced with the problem of either entering the land by faith or turning back in unbelief into the wilderness. And when they looked into the wilderness, they decided they'd try to go back into the land. But it was the wrong decision then because it wasn't a decision by faith. It was that they just didn't want to face that wilderness. They had had two years of it, and it was not a very comfortable place to be. So back into the wilderness now, they must go because they presume to go. And presumption is as dangerous as unbelief for a child of God. And many of us need to be very careful about presuming. I was talking to a party the other day. He's a businessman, and he has had a responsible position, and he was laid off from this responsible position. And in the meantime, he'd made a move, bought a new home and new furniture. That is, a great deal of it was new. Some of it had been stored. And just as he and his wife beginning life all over again, why, this thing happens. And his question to me was, why would God let this happen to me, especially since he led me to do this, that is, by a new home? Well, I said, I recall hearing you talk during the time you were buying the new home. You were not sure of the leading of God at the time, and you very frankly said you didn't want to move into that area at all, and now you're blaming God for all of that. I said, could it be that you were just moved by presumption, and you did this by presumption? Well, he said, I just thought God would bless me. My friend, we need to be very careful as believers whether we are moving by faith or by presumption. And somewhere between those two is the will of God. It's worthwhile to spend time to find out what the will of God is. Now God has turned them back into the wilderness. And the wandering in the wilderness from Kadesh Barnea is what we have before us now. Here, walking is turned to wandering. Marching is turned to murmuring. Witnessing now is turned to wailing. Warring is turned to wobbling. Singing is turned to sighing. And working is turned to wishing. And unfortunately... A great many Christians go through life just like this. Now, the interesting thing is that this period is not recorded. Actually, there is no record of it anywhere. Only a few incidents 
are recorded, and we'll look at those incidents. They're really silent years. And when we get over to the 33rd chapter, which is about as uninteresting as any chapter could be, you have the log of the journeys. And these incidents can be fitted in there. But reading the log, you know that you're not given a detailed account. These are wasted years that the children of Israel... Now, we can know a great deal about them during this period. We know when we get over to the book of Joshua in the fifth chapter that they did not circumcise their children during this period, which means they were not fulfilling the will of God relative to the covenant God had made to Abraham. And we also know that they did not offer sacrifices at the tent. In fact, it's Amos that tells us over in the fifth chapter, verse 25, he says, "...have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Chiun, your images, the star your God, which ye made to yourselves." so that they did not offer sacrifices at the tent of meeting at all, the sacrifices that pointed to Christ. And not only that, they worship idols in this period. And Stephen, in that long discourse that he gave in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, he says in verse 42, "...then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O ye house of Israel." Have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. You see, the children of Israel were not faithful to God during this period at all. We know something of their faithlessness. Now they are turned back into the wilderness, and those years of wandering have many lessons for us today. To begin with, you and I are pilgrims and strangers in this world, and in God's sight, the world today is a wilderness. Now, it may not look that way to us. Some of us here in Southern California have never felt this was a wilderness. Of course, it's covered with smog and traffic now. But nevertheless, we never think of it as a wilderness. But God looks upon this world as a wilderness. And you and I, as believers, are just passing through this world as strangers and pilgrims. Now notice in chapter 15 what he has to say to them. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, when ye come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you. Now, notice this. They can delay God's blessing, but they cannot destroy God's purpose. That is the whole theme of this chapter here. God goes forward, and the people are going backward. They're turned back into the wilderness out of which they've come. God said they were going to enter. And as far as that is concerned, it's as good as done. That's the reason a great deal of prophecy is put in what is known as a prophetic tense in the Old Testament. It's put in, actually, as past tense. As far as God is concerned, it's done, friends. When he says it's going to come to pass, well, it's come to pass in his program. Now we find out that actually... At this particular stage, God says, "...when ye come into the land of your habitations, which I give unto you." These are the things you're going to do. Well, forty years later, Israel in a new generation, they entered the land and they did the things that their fathers disbelieved. Now, here is some of the things that God says to them that they were to do when they got in the land. God says, "...I'll make an offering by fire unto the Lord." a burnt offering or a sacrifice in performing a vow, or in a free will offering or in your solemn feast, to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd of the flock. Then shall he that offereth his offering unto the Lord, 
And then he goes on to talk to them about this offering. And he says that a hint of oil was to be put on it. That speaks of the Holy Spirit. And you're to put a hen of wine for a drink offering. And that speaks of joy. And the ram here is also offered, not only a lamb, but a ram is to be offered. And then in verse 8, when thou preparest a bullock. In other words, God talks to them about exactly what they're going to do when they enter the land. This is just the same as done as far as God is concerned. But now in the wilderness, they'll turn back to idolatry. But the new generation that's coming into the land are going to offer these offerings that all speak of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, may I just intrude here with a word relative to this as it is applicable to us today. How many of us as believers, probably you listen to this Bible study, and you go to a good church, I'm sure, and on Sunday you serve the Lord. But actually, on Monday, are you serving God? Are you serving the Lord Jesus? When you go to work, put on your workday clothes, are you serving Christ then, just as you did on Sunday? Or really, are you serving the gods of this world today? How many Christians today... The minute that Monday comes, they lapse right back into the program of the world. And the Lord Jesus is forgotten for all day Monday. Does he go with you for Monday, friends? You see, God says when you get into the land, these offerings all speak of Christ, and these are the things that you're to do. But in the wilderness, these people, they turned away from these things. And again, may I say, are you today living a secular life during the week and a sort of a sacred religious life on Sunday? It's no good, friends. I tell you, the Lord Jesus, he wants to go into the marketplace with you. He wants to go into the marts of trade and on the streets of this world today. And he's as real there as he is in your church on Sunday. I can assure you that how we need to see this. Now, there's a great deal in this chapter that we could deal with, but I'm not going to deal with it because this actually is to be the law for them when they get into the land. You see, they're not going to be there until 40 years. But God, he's going ahead. To him, it's just same as done. He mentions something here that we've seen already in Leviticus. And that is, verse 24, "...then it shall be, if ought be committed by ignorance without the knowledge of the congregation," and so on. And God says here, they are to bring a kid of the goats for a sin offering. And again, may I remind you of something that is very important today. There's a great deal of debate today. Are the heathen who've never heard the gospel, are they lost? May I say to you, they're not lost because they're ignorant of the gospel. They're lost because they're sinners. And sins of ignorance had to have an offering, friends. And so men are lost, not because of whether they've heard or haven't heard the gospel. That's not the test today. I disagree with those who insist that it is. Now, I think every man ought to have the opportunity to hear the gospel and make a decision. But the man's lost long before the gospel. You see, Christ came to save the lost, and men are lost. That's their natural state. Now, if a few mud turtles are taught to fly and they enjoy flying, that doesn't mean that if the rest of the mud turtles don't learn to fly, that they are being deprived of something because the mud turtles actually like the mud and like it down there in the water. They don't care for flying. The lost are not sitting down grieving today because they've not heard the gospel. If you've ever had the opportunity of taking the gospel to those that haven't heard it, you recognize they're not anxious to hear it, friends. We need to recognize that today, and that's a great message here. 
Now, in the last part of this chapter, and I will not dwell on it because I don't want to insist on it, but you will find out we have here, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they found him gathering sticks, brought him to Moses. What did they do? Why, he was stoned to death. You say, that's pretty severe. Yes, but that's breaking one of God's commandments in that day. Now, that actually means this, that the death penalty was enforced or was the penalty for breaking all of the Ten Commandments. I think that is quite obvious here. And then we have the children of Israel told here to put a border of blue, speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the border of their garments throughout the generations. They have put fringe of blue on the bottom. What's that for? Well, they are to be reminded of the fact that blue is a heavenly color, that they are God's people, and they are to have a heavenly walk down here in this earthly sphere in which we're walking today. And there are many believers today that need to have that border of blue to make very clear to the world that they are living for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very important. 